A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly podcast on happiness and work culture. Hi, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and normally a place where you can come and hear some chat about work, culture, and trying to make work a happier place to be. But these are a series of shorts, so this is... Uh, the second short piece of insight from leading thinkers on the subject of work evolution. Matthew Taylor's today's guest. He's the chief executive of the RSA, having previously been Tony Blair's head of the Number 10 Policy Unit. Back in the day, he helped run the Labour Rapid Response Unit, Rapid Rebuttal Unit, helped uh, write the 2005 Manifesto. I thought the least satisfying episode in the Tony Blair trilogy. The RSA is an apolitical organisation committed to finding innovative, practical solutions to today's social challenges. He spent a lot of time thinking about increasing society's happiness and sort of net total societal um, well-being. This year, Matthew delivered a report to Theresa May looking at the evolving nature of work. The Taylor Report, sometimes called the Good Work Report, looks at automation, what the concepts of good work look like. We chat about robots taking over, the gig economy, the vital ingredients of a happy job. Brilliant insight from a man who spent years and years studying these things. As ever, you'll find all of the episodes on the website Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Here's Matthew. The thing I'm really interested in exploring is obviously you spent some time thinking about what the future of work looks like and and how work is going to evolve. Overall, I took your take to be fairly optimistic, actually. You know, for example, the discussions about automation, you're pretty positive on the benefits of automation. I just wonder, as you look forward into the future of work, if you could sort of summarise the things that you were thinking about. Well, thanks, Bruce. I think we have to make a distinction, first of all, between quantity of work and quality of work. And one of the things that I thought it was important to say in my report was that we do pretty well as a country in terms of quantity of work. We've got higher employment rates than we've ever had before. We've got pretty low unemployment rates historically and certainly in comparison to other countries. And part of that story is that we do create lots of flexible forms of work. And most people who do who work flexibly say that that's a form of work which suits them, which they're happy with. And importantly, even those people who say they're not happy with their flexible work, it's not necessarily because of the work they're doing. It's because they'd rather be doing something else. They wish they could get a permanent or a full-time job. So just because we're quite good at the moment in terms of work quantity, we mustn't take that for granted. You know, I'm old enough to know when unemployment and underemployment were the key issues facing us and indeed after the credit crunch everyone assumed that we would face a period of very high unemployment and we've come through that and we've come through that well so we mustn't take for granted the, the question of quantity of work because the critical thing to know is that when you don't have a job and you want a job the gap between good quality work and bad quality work is not as big as the gap between a job and no job. Having no job is bad for your health, it's bad for your self-esteem, it's bad for your social network, it's obviously bad for your finances. So nothing I said in my report and nothing that I want to say about good work should be seen as taking for granted our, our record in terms of quantity of jobs. And indeed, I wouldn't be happy making recommendations, which I thought was going to damage our record in terms of quantity of work. Now, in relation to quality of work, 
I think what I wanted to argue in the review is that there is nothing, in my view, essential about poor quality work. So on the one hand, I don't agree with those people, and people often have said this to me during the last few months, yeah, but there are just some jobs that are not nice jobs that nobody wants to do. I, I think that any job can be designed in a way, people can be engaged in a way, which provide some satisfaction. Yes, of course, being a security guard doing a night shift is not going to offer the same opportunities for fulfillment as being a kind of, you know, professor of philosophy at a university. But nevertheless, there are ways in which you can organize even the work of a security guard on nights, which makes them feel valued, which gives them choices, which rewards them taking uh, initiative. And then the other point I wanted to make is that there is a kind of technological determinism that says, well, the future of work is simply going to be whatever is left when the robots and um, automation AI has taken the rest of it. And I don't think that's true. I think there's a lot of, to be honest, a lot of build talked about the way in which automation is going to impact jobs. I think we are at the very early stages of understanding this. And I'll give you one really telling statistic. It looks as though analysis of the effect of more retail sales going online has been to create jobs. Yes, there are fewer people now working in shops, but the number of people working in warehouses and delivering things, the increase in that number of people is much bigger than the decline of people working in retail. Now, just that one fact should give us pause for thought when we read statistics saying, you know, 40% of jobs are going to be destroyed by automation. It's up to us what the future of work is. That's my message. So I'd like to say I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. What I, what I believe is it is up to us to determine what our future should be. Yeah, so, so I guess to some extent the jobs might not be the jobs that were previously there, but I think every generation's seen that. They, they might be redistributed, but you're optimistic on it. Yeah, I mean, look, just take a walk down the local row of shops near where you live, and you probably won't see a fishmonger, and you probably won't see a hardware shop. You may not see a kind of old-fashioned kind of newspaper stationery shop anymore, but that's because these businesses have been damaged online. But what you will find is a nail bar, what you'll find is a wine bar, what you'll find is a coffee shop, what you might find is someone off- offering kind of alternative health and, and and massage, and that's fine. And I don't think that the whilst as one gets older, and I'm getting quite old, there's a kind of tendency to nostalgia. I don't think there's anything intrinsically better or worse between a fishmonger and a hardware shop on the one hand, and a coffee shop and a kind of masseur on the other. I did empathise when I was reading through what you'd had to contemplate, because I thought... The gig economy, I mean, look, I guess zero hours existed in some forms in, in the past, but the gig economy is the advent of the last five years. So to plot forward when technology is growing exponentially, it's so difficult. What are the things that played into your head? Was it, were you thinking about, and I know you, you worked with other talented people, but were you thinking about direction of travel? Or how did you, did, did you have a time frame in mind that you're thinking, this is what I think 2030 looks like? Yes, I think, look, when we talk about gig work, we tend to overwhelmingly talk about two companies, don't we? We talk about Uber and we talk about Deliveroo. And I think it's really important to say that what Uber and Deliveroo do existed before Uber and Deliveroo came along and before we primarily got our minicab and taxi journeys in cities online and we ordered our food online. You know, We were ringing up and ordering pizzas before we could do it online and we were booking minicabs on the phone before we could do it online. And in fact, the forms of employment that exist in those sectors were no different, really. Generally speaking, they wanted to claim that the people working for them were self-employed. What I was particularly interested in was, yes, it's important that 
big companies like Uber and Deliveroo play by the rules, uh, uh, obey the spirit of the law as well as the letter of the law. I was also concerned about growing reports about the potential, what is sometimes called a very ugly word, the Uberization of other areas of, of work. So there's a lot of discussion, for example, about the Uberization of retail. The idea, well, why do we need people working in our shop eight hours a day when we know when the footfall is going to be? You know, why don't we say to people that you can sit around the corner in a cafe or whatever and we'll call you in for an hour in the morning, an hour at lunchtime and an hour in the evening? Now, I think that the kind of if we were if we were to maintain an environment where it looks as though you can benefit in tax terms and in terms of employment obligations, by casualizing your workforce, that would be a big problem for us. A big problem in terms of people's quality of life and security of income and also a big problem for our finances because, of course, self-employed people don't carry with them the same tax charge as employed people do. Can we come on to sort of how work and our jobs intersects with happiness? And then obviously you spent a lot of time thinking about happiness and how you can create happiness. And your take on it, as far as I can see, is that sometimes happiness is created by really small things. And like, you know, happiness can derive from very different things. When you're providing advice on that, what were the things that you thought about in the, with the, the broad principles of how you can create happiness? I think the first thing to say is that it, it was me and the review panel who decided early on to shift from a focus on the regulation of particular types of employment to this broader question of good work. And I'm sometimes asked if there was one thing in the review that I could see implemented, acted upon, what would it be? And actually it would be this broad commitment to good work. If we as a country took the quality of work as seriously as we take quantity of work, I think that would be a good thing. And part of the reason it would be a good thing is because bad work tends to be clustered amongst people who have got the least power in the labour market, the most disadvantaged people, fewest educational qualifications. So if you could improve the quality of work across the economy, you would particularly help those people um, who are most disadvantaged. So I think, first of all, it's really important to say that this idea of quality of work is not one that has been prioritised in public policy or even really in public conversation. And I hope more than anything else that the review addresses that. So once we started to talk about good work, of course the question then arises as to what does good work involve and actually the findings on that are pretty consistent which is that there are kind of two levels to this. There's a, a basic level so people want decent pay and decent basic terms and conditions to be safe. They want to feel they're being treated fairly. If people feel that the salary they're getting is acceptable and they're being treated fairly and that they're not being endangered or asked to take on reasonable risks or whatever, you then get to a kind of second order of concerns, which is where it is, I think, Bruce, your question about happiness comes into to, to focus. We ran a little campaign from the RSA called Good Work Is, and we asked people what their definition of good work is, and what they said was very consistent with what other, other surveys have found. So a sense of meaning and purpose. People want to feel that their job has a purpose, not necessarily some grand philosophical world-changing purpose, but that they are providing something of value and that they make a difference. Secondly, people want to feel some sense of autonomy, that they are not cogs in a machine, that they have some capacity to exercise choice, to exercise discretion, that they are trusted. Thirdly, people want some sense of voice, that whether at an individual or a collective level, that they are heard, that they are respected, just as we do as citizens want to feel that we are heard and respected, so people at work want that as well. And then fourthly, I'd say teamwork is an important element of this. We know that when soldiers are asked why it is they put their lives at 
in danger in the battlefield. It isn't really for the cause of the war or even for their nation. It is for the other members of their group of soldiers. It is for their comrades in arms. And I think similarly, we want to feel when we're at work that we're part of a team of people who've got each other's backs and, and also just the sort of sociability of being part of a team. So meaning, autonomy, respect. And then I think the final one I'd want to emphasize is is kind of mar- what's sometimes called mastery or the, the idea that you're getting better at something, you're learning something, and that the thing that you're learning, either that you take pride in that, or that in learning that, that will open up new opportunities to you in the future, which is why it is the phrase that we used in the report is that we wanted every job in the British economy to be fair and decent, that's that kind of lower, minimal necessities, but also that every job should have scope for development and fulfilment. And so by development, we mean that every job has got scope for people to develop in that job and develop from that job into another job, but also for fulfillment that the job has got some element if you want fulfillment matters to you that you can get something out of that job which makes you feel good about yourself the final thing i'll touch on and so your previous work and the the work that you've you've done before um i saw you know you you were talking about you know the the ingredients of happiness more broadly are there any lessons that you think collectively as society we should be thinking about about increasing net happiness i think my position on on happiness both at the individual level and also in terms of social progress is this on the one hand, there are certain ingredients that we know contribute to people's sense of well-being and happiness, and also certain ingredients that seem to come together to make social progress more likely. I think that the three things that we most want and crave in life are, broadly speaking, some idea of individual achievement, that we have achieved something, that we have, it's ambition, that we have fulfilled our kind of ambitions. It's a kind of goal of kind of mastery. I've become the best I can at the thing that I do. I think second, we want to feel that we've done good, whether it's doing good to our family or our community, that we've somehow left the world a better place, that we're a good person. And then thirdly, I think we want to enjoy ourselves. So I say, understand the ingredients for happiness, understand the ingredients for success, but don't ever think that you will get to the point where you can find a solution and sit back and then just let it unfold wonderfully. Because I think if you do that, you'll end up being miserable because you'll be constantly, actually, we have to keep making it up every day. We have to make it up again. Thanks, Matthew, for a brilliant insight to where work's going. Thanks for listening to this second Eat Sleep Short. See you next time.